0: And just uh, probably a good item to note and something I often forget is, um, you know, the offerings are in the bulletin and, uh, and you can read the description of them there. And I probably should have read the one about True North Aid and since my, my twin brother is the executive director. And uh, so, sorry Ken. Um, and, uh, you know, they support northern and remote indigenous communities in Canada through practical humanitarian support. More than 45% of indigenous children living below the poverty line. There's much work to be done. And uh, True North Aid believes in self-governance and self-determination is the key to closing the poverty gap. And with your help and support, um, we can see lives changed and our True North once again become strong and free. Next week, our collection is for our local Christian school, HCCS which offers quality Christian education based on a solid academic program. And children grow academically, socially, and spiritually in a safe and a happy environment. And uh, these donations often, you know, I, I don't carry cash with me. I don't know how many times my kids ask me for five bucks. I don't have it. And uh, But there's ways to give online and uh, through e-transfer, through Trek, and... Uh, and times are changing even in the method that we give, but we can still give. Our uh, sermon entitled today is, is Setting the Stage, but actually Heather said you're mixing metaphors, Chris, and uh, so I changed it, and I'm going to call it an uninteresting story, and uh and I'm going to do a series of messages that are really going to focus on where is God in your story. And uh, those messages are still being birthed, so to speak, but today it's called An Uninteresting Story. And it's based on Matthew 11, um, 1 to 19. Do we have that? Excellent. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus had finished instructing instructing his twelve disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you have heard and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, he's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare a way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who has come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And this is the text I'm going to focus on today. What can I compare this generation They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her Deeds. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. And if anyone has a peppermint or anything like that, I would love... It's like I have peanut butter on the roof of my mouth. So, uh, oh, look at that. Oh. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, I'll take an extra one if that's okay. Thank you very much. So, Hopefully this will help a little bit. Sifting through some papers Um, the other day, I was down at my desk trying to do, I wouldn't say organizing, looking for something, I guess. I saw um, a paper with some various songs on it. These were older songs, songs sung with a message, usually pushing pushing back against culture or the issues of the day. You see, my son was learning a few of these in his English class, and one had caught my attention. It caught my eye because I heard this song referenced in a message I heard years ago that I still think about today. It was actually one of those messages that I'll always say, that will be the message I will always remember. It was by Tony Campolo when he spoke at the Alliance of Christian Schools many years ago. I still think about it to this day. I don't know if a few were there. Is anybody? Aunt Sally, were you there? You were. And somehow I got that message on a CD, and I must have listened to it, I don't know, probably 20 times or more. And the one song that caught my eye was called Little Boxes, and it was written by Malvina Reynolds in 1962, and it was made famous by Pete Seeger, Again, that's not from my generation. I listen to 80s. You know, that's my, not not 60s music. But these songs are probably better. And it's called Little Boxes. And here's a few of the lyrics. Try not to sing it, because I... Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. There's a pink one, and a green one, and a blue one, and a yellow one. And they're all made out of ticky-tacky. And they all look just the same. And the people in the houses all went to the university where they were put into boxes and they came out all the same. And there's doctors and there's lawyers and there's business executives and they're all made out of ticky-tacky and they all look just the same. And they all played on the golf course and they drank their martinis dry. And they all have pretty children and the children go to school and the children go to summer camp. And then to the university, where they're all put into boxes, and they all come out the same. Who's heard that song before? Yeah, several of you. You see, Melvina, the writer of the song, was driving with her parents through Daly City, California. She felt disappointed because there was row upon row of houses, what we call today suburbia. And that's where the inspiration from this song came from. You see, everyone it appeared to live, and so then she wrote this, you can call it a dirge or a funeral song, really, because everyone, it appears, seems to be living cookie-cutter lives, living in similar houses with good jobs and pretty kids and vacations, and then a reference to the shoddy houses that were being built, boxes made of ticky-tacky. I had to look that one up. I I really didn't know what he meant by that. But there, the lives looked all the same. You see, this is 20 years post-World War. Opportunities abound. Industry is booming. Everyone is moving up the ladder. And everybody believes this is freedom and the good life not the Pax Romana, but it's the Pax America, or the Pax Canadian. Yet to Melvina, something doesn't seem right. Comfort, being respectable, having a good job. Is this it? Is this all there is? You know, I don't personally have a problem with these things. Um, And I don't think really God does either. He certainly doesn't like the hellishness that was 20 years prior during World War II. We all yearn for peace and prosperity, and I think God wants, really wants us to have it. I do. Hear these words from David in Psalm 34, 8-10. to Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you holy people, for you who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. But that truth, that prosperity, though, that God maybe wants us to have without character and a fear of God, it's going to lead to all kinds of problems. It always does. I want to give a little caveat, though as I was thinking about this message, conformity is not the same as consistency and responsibility. Consistency and responsibility to raise your family, to run your business, to show up to work and do it faithfully, these are all God-honoring character traits. But there could be a conformity where we act like everyone around us And then the fruits of the spirit or the character traits of God are missed. And this conformity pushes the lie that buy this or do that and your life will improve. Just hear some of these ad slogans from the 60s. Some of you older people, you'll remember the Dr. Pepper difference. Or the coffee that tastes as good as it smells. Does anybody know what brand that was? I actually forgot to... Is that Maxwell House? Maxwell House? Or things go better with Coke. It's a drink filled with sugar. It's also true. It's also true. Okay, I, well, I can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. And so this conformity, though, it leads to a dullness that keeps us striving after what is tastier, more comfortable, more respectable even. But then the lives, our lives become routine and but also competitive, just as the factories where the people worked. We need to produce more stuff for cheaper to beat the competition. And then it kind of comes into us that we feel we need to be a little bit better than our neighbor on the left because we're always looking to the family on the right. And envy feeds the greed, and capitalism is happy to profit from it the gods of consumerism and materialism. And you know, this can make the most resolute person exhausted, numb, broke, anxious, confused, and critical. And I hear a lot of that sentiment today in society. And so this song reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, where he laments. And actually, if you go to the verses I didn't read, he's really hard on the generation of his day. He's lamenting their unbelief and their hard hearts. And I don't think he was making a broad sweep. I think actually he was pointing more at the leaders, the church leaders of his day. I'm not sure. But one of the symptoms of this unbelief is a critical spirit that takes shape in the life of comfort and ease, and it could produce, well, an uninteresting life. A dull life instead of a curiosity that we should have. A curiosity for something more, for something outside of themselves, for something bigger, for something deeper. Before I came to Christ, I mean, that was the one thing that was coming up in my heart. Chris, there has to be more meaning to life. And when I found Christ, I realized what I had been missing. And to be truthful has not been an easy journey. It's been actually far harder post-Christ than pre-Christ. Actually, it's been far harder. And yet, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And so in the beginning of this story, Matthew says that John was in prison. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, "Are, are you the one? And Jesus said simply, go back and tell John what I'm doing. And he'll know. I'm opening blind eyes, deaf ears, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, preaching the coming of the kingdom of heaven. No more Braille books, glasses, hearing aids. My dad will like that. Skin disease, cancer, eradicated. He even raised the dead. Can you imagine? The person that you were, boy, I'm, I'm really glad they actually passed away. You're thinking in your heart, and there they are alive again. And now you got to deal with them. you got to deal with the problems. You were hoping it would go away, but Jesus raised them from the dead. You see, the purpose of the miracles of Jesus, from what I can see, was to move people to see that something was missing from their lives. To get them out of their dull conformity, their complacency, their critical spirit. And so Jesus looks around the community and sees that his work and his miracles go right over most of their heads. In Matthew eleven seventeen, 17, Jesus says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the pipe, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge or a funeral song, and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he is demon-possessed. I come either eating or drinking, and I'm eating and drinking, and they say I'm a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Then Jesus says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. It's like Jesus had trouble finding the words to say in what he saw. How can I describe this generation? We played a dance song and nobody got up to dance. We played a sad song and nobody cried. Everybody's too busy on their phones. Nobody's curious about what's going on, about what's taking place. And so verse 17 is really just a simile for verse 18 and 19. I hope I got that right. (laughs) Matthew fasted a lot. He wore weird clothing, Matthew says earlier. Camel hair, ate locusts, wild honey. But he preached an important message. What was it? Get right with God by confessing your wrongs. Own it. Put stuff in place to prevent you from doing those things. Then do something with your life and make somebody else's life better. It's a golden rule. Back in Luke 3, John says, if you have more than you need, share it. This goes for food, clothing, whatever. Don't cheat anybody. Don't line your pockets. Don't falsely accuse people and be content with what you have. You know, this is not rocket science. And yet it's so hard. Today it's actually not poverty of food and clothing. And you go out amongst the poor, they actually have lots of food to eat often, especially in Western society and lots of clothes to wear. But it's a poverty of loneliness, of not being heard. But then Jesus says, says but then you... You slander John. Ah, he's just a weirdo. I can't really take him seriously. He probably has a demon. Hey, get over here. I think he needs some deliverance. And then Jesus comes on the scene to fulfill John's message with power and love. And Jesus was showing that he is the one that everyone needs to look to in order for their heart to change. He's the end of the law. He's the word of God made flesh. Just skip the book and go to the conclusion. The whole story from beginning to end points to him. John's message was pointing to Jesus. Not fear, but love. Not rules and regulations, but acts of love and compassion for others that begin to soften one's heart. That's where belief can begin to grow. Just read chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. In a men's group, we're actually going through... um, Matthew's gospel and uh, and in our group the four of us we use the soap method and uh, the soap method of studying scripture is basically what what does the scripture what stands out to you what pricks your heart and then you observe what it has to say and then you write an application there's a lot of scriptures or there's not a lot of application but how does it apply to your life and then you say a prayer And what we do in a men's group, we just simply hold each other accountable. And the plan is to actually at least do four a week, and more is better. And studies have shown that the more you're in God's Word studying it, the more you'll be faithful, the more that you'll grow in faith. It's powerful, and just being part of that group has been really important to me. And back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Pastor Sid from Kempel CRC is doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so, if you ever get a chance, just kind of tune into his messages and see what he has to say. And uh, it's powerful stuff because it's so simple. And it's almost identical to really what John was saying be humble. Don't judge others. Let your light shine. Be a peacemaker. Keep praying to your Heavenly Father and allow Him to change people's hearts. Love your enemies even. Bless people even when they speak ill of you. But then Jesus reminds them of their own words. You just say, I'm just a drunkard and a glutton. I'm no better than those rotten sinners he's eating and drinking with. It's like Jesus wants to say, where's your wonder and your awe at what I'm doing? Where's your compassion for hurting people? If what John says doesn't get your attention, if what I do doesn't get your attention, I I think I'm out of options here. So was Malvina a modern-day prophet like those in the Old Testament, Amos, Hosea, Joel? I'm not sure. I don't know her life story. I don't know what she's gone through. I haven't sat down to talk to her, so I really don't know, and I can't say. But one thing is true, living a life of conformity as opposed to consistency and responsibility does not make for an interesting story. And those who did, who do, step away from a life of conformity and are consistent and responsible in their faith. Have a testimony that they can share, and they see in the end that God was working through their story all along. And you know, these stories—they don't. Nobody sets out to be famous, but but um, through the growth of character and a resolve to stand for Jesus, it speaks volumes to those who would listen, and it makes for an interesting story. I just want to share a little bit about. Desmond Doss. It's a movie that I've watched numerous times. And uh, it's a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. It's a World War II flick, but it's a true story. It's a powerful story, and it's about a young man who loved Jesus. He had a father who was alcoholic and suffered PTSD when he was in World War I. But Desmond refused to touch a gun Or take a life. You see, he was consistent and responsible. And he held to his values even when it hurt. And so he joined up for World War II. Because he felt it was his responsibility to serve God and country. But when he refused to touch a gun, he was berated, beat up, humiliated, mocked. And they tried to get him court-martialed and kicked out of the army. They eventually... He was able to sign up as a medic and not have to hold a gun. You see, this is what he said. He said, you know, my dad, my dad had bought these Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, and it was illustrated in this nice frame. And I looked at that picture, and I looked at the Sixth Commandment, Thou shall not kill. And in that picture, there was Cain and how he killed his brother Abel. And I I wondered in the world, how could one brother kill Another, how could somebody do such a thing? So I've always pictured Christ for saving life. I want to be like Christ, go saving life instead of taking life. And that's the reason I take up medicine. So Desmond went and he fought on a hill in Okinawa, Japan. And the carnage was brutal. When so many died and they retreated back down, Desmond wondered, where is God in all of this? Where's God in this hell hole? But then he heard the cry of his dying comrade in the night and he said, "Okay, Lord. Just one more. Just one more." And all night, single-handedly, he rescued 75 men off that mountain that were left for dead. He said it was 50. His comrade said it was 100, so they They went in the middle at 75. His superior and his comrades initially wrote him off as a coward, but in the end they were shocked. He was the one with courage because he stood on his convictions. And they said no one ever had the courage that he did. You see, back in basic training, he said that in a world of hate, is it so wrong to try to put a bit of love back in it? He said this, he said, I had men up there, and I shouldn't leave them. They were my buddies. Some of the men had families, and they trusted me. I didn't feel that I should value my own life above my buddies. So I decided to stay with them, to take care of many of them as I could. I, I didn't know how he was going to do it. Just one more, Lord, just one more. For the rest of his life, he lived a humble life with no fanfare, wasn't looking for notoriety, money, nothing. He was just a humble man of God, living out his responsibility and his convictions. But he didn't conform to the rest, what the rest of the guys were doing. They had to do it. He said, I'm not going to take a life. I'm going to save a life. Over the next coming weeks, we're going to see how God is in each in every one of our stories how god is in the details he wants to rewrite our story he wants us to take our eyes off ourselves and to focus on him and others he wants to discover his story in us so we can see him working through us and you know this is going to take a lot of work on our parts but in the words of alan or uh, dan allender You know, we're in the presence of a good story. When the flaw that shatters your peace is also the doorway to your redemption. Whether it be the flaw or the sin in others, God uses the raw material of sin to create the building of his redeemed glory. Unlike what Malvina lamented in 1962, unlike the burden on Jesus' heart when he walked this earth, We're going to learn and be encouraged that our difficulties are the pathway to our redemption. And the Bible assumes that its stories are also our story. We're Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph. Their stories are really a pattern of our own. And each of us are called, redeemed, and exiled again and again. And you know what? That makes for an interesting story amen amen let's call the worship team forward let us pray heavenly father thank you that you are in each and every one of our stories we might think our stories are nothing worth sharing about but they are And we can see that you are in the details when we turn our eyes to you and we begin to love others as you want us to love them. So help us today, Lord, knowing that uh, you don't want us to live a life that conforms to just all the rhetoric going on around us, but lives of faith, consistency, responsibility. We can see you at work in our lives. Help us to do our part, knowing that you will do your part. We thank you for who you are. We praise and we glorify you just because of your great love for us. Sometimes we miss that. Actually, almost every day we we seem to miss that. But you're always there. You're always ready to forgive. You're always ready to show us the way. We love you we praise you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand. Let us stand.